Okay, Jer Bear, we're ready. It's been a while. <laughs> has it? I guess it has. It's always yeah. been a while. It's always been a while. So, welcome to this podcast, Trying to Be Kind, a podcast that looks at academic texts under the auspices of a TTRPG understanding. I'm trying this whole new spiel now. Yeah, you're really you're like really it. pushing the edges of it, and I like it. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's like I'm trying to be edgy. This um, is the edgiest <laughs> I'm going to get. And as always, we have our introductory question, which is, who is the postmodernist that you think people oversight and do not understand? Uh, also, who are you? Also, who are you? Of course, as always, just, as always you know. Always. I mean, you know, we've, we're, we're five seasons in. Do you honestly think people are starting with this episode? <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. It's like they might, putting, you know, <laughs> depending on what you title it. <laughs> oh, oh my true. goodness, that's true. That's true. Uh, Jared, we need to think about our titling. I mean, we need to think about our social media. And you know what? Let's, let's, let's shop more answers. Modern. We should really work on our SEO. You're right. Yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. So, uh, who would like to go first, friendos? Okay, I'll go first. So, hey, uh, my name is Mahar, and I'm going to say that the person that people keep on citing without understanding who they really mean, what they really mean, is Michel Foucault. Oh and, my god, that and, was what I was going to say. You know what? <laughs> what was my first pick? <laughs> at nothing says this more by use of the word discourse, because when people talk about, we need to talk about the discourse. Yeah. No, because that's not the definition of discourse. All right. Discourse is not talking about how people are having discussions. What you're rather talking about are the set of yes or no ideological statements by which people accept and reject the world. That's the definition of discourse. So because it's a meaning of ideologies, which goes back to Gramsci and Althusser. So please do not talk about discourse and say Foucault if you don't talk about the meaning of ideology as it pertains to power regarding the acceptance and rejection of things. That's my pet beef. Discourse is not what Twitter says it is. <laughs> pet peeve, pet peeve. Are, are you like on the Foucault you finish- train as well, Emma? Yeah. Well, I am coming out of an anthro department where, especially early in your stages of grad, it's like everyone's saying Foucault. And then you're like, oh God, I don't know what Foucault is is talking about but don't ever reveal that to anyone else (laughs) but like then we're all just walking around being like i don't fucking know (laughs) but yeah i don't know i mean seriously like half the time i think people read foucault just because they want to feel edgy with titles like discipline and punish and the history of sex volumes one and two yeah, I had. Hey, there was a third volume, and the it's fourth true. is not technically published, but The Abnormals is an essay series uh, from his lectures at one of the Ecoles, I think, um, does kind of cover what would be in the theoretical fourth volume. I mean, yeah, still. Fiona says, you know, as the person that's read every published work of Foucault in English, um, yeah. you know, and I'll say most people that talk about Foucault, including college professors, are deeply incorrect about what he says and yeah. actually should stop. I mean, I, Foucault I, I is read But doesn't Foucault self-admit that 10% of his stuff is relevant and the other 90% he was probably high? <laughs> I mean, he's working through, like, trying to create a discursive system in his early works about the archaeology of knowledge that he then admits that doesn't work a lot like, you know, Barth's in the fashion system, you know, whereas the success boy that I like and no one does 
Guild Loot, you know, motherfucker wrote the schizoanalysis and it works. Other than every follower of it is dumb and wrong. <laughs> Other than me. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I, okay. Uh, so we I, got... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got some like, you know, Fakodians here. Well, I wouldn't say I'm a Fakodian, but like we have a couple of people who are like, guys, please properly read Foucault first before you I start. I trade my that. copies of his books for some beers. <laughs> 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 he just was not coming up in my, <laughs> my discipline, like what I was doing. So I was like, why do I still have these? Sorry. <laughs> Emma, please tell me they were at least like pint sizes or like yeah, they lagers. Were, like, they were tall cans okay, of good. local craft book. beer because here we are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How about you, Jared or Fiona? Uh, well, um, my name's Jared. Oh, we're supposed to do the introduction part, so I, and I always forget, so I did it up front. Stop me if you've heard this one. Paul Fire Robin is a um, mid-century philosopher of science. Um, who it's his fault. It's his own fault, right? Because he, he has this whole thing where he talks about epistemological anarchy and he uses the phrase, anything goes, and he's got a book called against method and he breaks down why sort of the self mythology of science doesn't hold for the way it actually operates. And it's very post-popper. It's very anti-popper, but the problem is he's got all these slogans that don't quite work and people just take them on face value. So you see, every time you see fire Robin cited, it's like, Oh, fire Robin doesn't believe in anything. And it's like, no, <laughs> no, not at all. Actually. Um, he doesn't say, I know he says every, anything goes, but like that means something a little different than what it sounds like. So yeah, if you ever see fire Robin cited, um, which you won't because everyone just cites Kuhn cause they're cowards. Um, <laughs> but if you ever do understand, Oh my gosh. And our final, our PhD Fiona. Our, hi. our, our, our PhD Fiona. Yeah, I was about to say, I'm not. Um, hi, I'm Fiona Maeve Geist. And uh, to switch it up for, you know, philosophers, I was going to say Foucault, but you know what? Heidegger. <laughs> because there's just nothing yeah. valuable said by citing Heidegger. You could just cite Husserl and <laughs> it would be better and less prone to arch nationalism unless you're doing comparative philosophy with the Kyoto school where Heidegger is kind of one of the useful ways for figuring out how the communication with Western theorists went. But like, I guarantee that that's not what you're doing. You're probably oh, no. talking Are about houses gonna... and homes. And I'm sorry. None of that's useful. <laughs> oh God. Bringing back Husserl means we're going to have to, are we going to have to talk about phenomenology again? Like, Oh God. Never, never again. We're no. in postmodernity. We've transcended <laughs> no. the question of whether I as an object can ascertain the world through my sense perception and then communicate it to you. And we've said, no, it's okay. We can patch it all over with ideology. And when ideology fails, we'll have nationalism. And after the long mid-century, when that failed, everyone said, hey, all of our institutions failed and arts and culture don't seem to be creating new things. And I think I'm stuck in a flat circle, but I don't want to be a Marxist. And everyone said, well, have you heard of post-modernity? And then they said, but I am post-modernity. And, you know, then they cried. Um, this has been a post-modern fable. Would you like to know that there is a whole section of archaeology that focuses on phenomenology? Oh, yeah. God, really? How oh, yeah. is, is it the phenomenology of being an archaeologist? It's uh, trying to talk about the yeah, sensations of and the experience of sites and in the past and 
recreating things like sound and smell it's it's a it's a lot oh my goodness that 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 kind of sounds like a weird completionist slash essentialist way of looking at things i believe the word you're looking for is simulationist mahar we must remember we're a ttrpg podcast (laughs) i say is the devil I partly think some of it's just an excuse to get high and then write a paper about, like, maybe this is what the past felt like and what people experienced. But, like, for the most part, it's not taken that seriously. This is is honestly why I think that it's one of the biggest ironies of all these university campuses, like, going against, like, drugs for so many years when I just felt like so much of her faculty's research is powered by it. (laughs) Anyway... so uh, much of humanity it was powered by. <laughs> okay. Drugs are the well, most important technology for the development of civilization other than fire, which I will now argue is a drug. <laughs> <laughs> the book is... Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the book is Otaku, Japan's Database Animals by Hiroki Azuma, translated by Jonathan E. Abel and Shion Kono. As published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2009, but originally published in Japanese as the Butsuka Uda Post Modern Otaku Karamita Nibon Shakai, Tokyo Kodansha Gendai Shinsho 2001. Okay, I tried practicing saying this slightly better now, but I know it's still terrible. So we said that I would. Okay, so we finished the first part, basically, the entire introduction, whatever. But now we're going to look at this very interesting question, which it sounds like the basic question, like it often sounds like the basic question of any, say, proper theorist or essayist who, who asks, what am I talking about? Like, what is a taco culture? But I do like the, sub, the subheading more which is the figure of the postmodern as manifest in the structure of otaku culture. And I found that really interesting because it was very flat out the gate. And again, largely because we're reading it as an academic text, but it was first written as something far more accessible. That, okay, by the way, everyone, boom, we're, gonna, we're entering postmodernity here. Like our framework for discussing this cultural phenomenon of the otaku is postmodernity. And I was like, wow, this guy goes out the gate. Like, I'm, he basically goes like, guess what? My theory's post-1960s, ha <laughs> ha. And, and what is written in a time and published in a time where, again, we joked about it last time, the early 2000s, everyone seemed to be a pomosexual. Everyone was like, you know, I'm pomo. I'm, I'm into being pomo. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that word was very, you know, the thing. But that was actually the thing back in the day, 20 years ago. And this book even seems to be taking, like, it's positing an almost second or third wave kind of understanding of postmodern, you know, meta narrative structure here. Like, that's sort of the angle of the book, even, um, is replacing this sort of earlier postmodern grand narrative thing. Um, I've forgotten the name, Leotar, and replacing it with this database idea, right? So there's even this, like, niche within a niche kind of uh, belly button gazing perhaps angle to it that I find just charming. I mean, okay, so let's start the dive. Uh, What did you guys think about this discussion initially? Like when we start talking about uh, what otaku culture is and gives examples, but I just wanted to like also highlight this fairly uh, big 
um, like this after all these examples, this fairly large uh, claim here, uh, which is that I wish to offer my thesis that the essence of our era, post-modernity, is extremely well disclosed in the structure of otaku culture, merely as a tool for them to come to terms with the world and comprehend it from their respective positions. If I can accomplish this for as many readers as possible, I would be more than pleased. So yeah, basically like, to be otaku is to be postmodern, and I think that's a very uh, big claim to make. So let's actually ask ourselves: uh, What is otaku first? Our definition or the writers? You well, know, like I, that, yeah. that, that grad school question of is this a trap? Because yeah. um, <laughs> the the writer right um, mm. defines. Um, like, you know, otaku as a series of things that start in the 60s and makes a couple of claims that I feel like how provocative they might be is slightly lost on me as an English-like speaker in the United States, right? Things like saying that otaku culture is, like, in essence, USA-ian. I think in a national context of Japan probably rings really different in a way that I can't really imagine. Yeah, and I had I had a lot of reactions to this chapter. Um, that I am not going to just dump all at once. So <laughs> you focus on the otaku thing, and I'm well. Starting out, I think I was really annoyed with this concept and the continued use of the term otaku culture, as if this is a thing and it exists and it's agreed upon. And like, that's not necessarily how cultures work, but like, uh, I think he relies a lot on the audience's preconceived concepts of otaku to make this discussion happen. And the difficulty is because this was published in early 2000s and it is not the early 2000s anymore, I'm working with a very different concept and uh, honestly different environment at this point. Like otaku to us and how we understand it now is not going to be the same. Although we are all old enough, I think, to know exactly what type he is talking about. Oh yeah, for sure. He spends a, a good part of this contrasting with the negative perceptions of otaku that was publicized by the media which is ongoing you know still fears about antisocial in brackets said small but almost always said male demographic that is obsessive over things that they were supposed to grow out of like comics and anime and all of that kind of stuff video games as if these things have age limits wow Clearly they do. There's a social expectation to yeah. do otherwise. I'm sorry, I make the worst jokes. But um, <laughs> I do actually I, think it's interesting to see the division between like the 60s to the sort of present generation for him having a lot to do with visual mediums and like the dropping of science fiction elements. Because um, like, I like a lot of the stuff from the 60s that he refers to as immature. As oh, an yeah. form. Well, yeah. I mean, like, so he <clears throat> he kind of talks about otaku almost like it's a movement, like a series of movements, because right. he refers to them as generations. 
so for a while there was this kind of like I I felt rather confused because it's on one because okay how do I put this not I can't believe I'm using this it's are you what you say you are or are you what other people call you right that's yeah. that's the problem with this with this um with this text because what he's saying is that the problem right now is that the media called otaku individuals first as highly public individuals by virtue of being so withdrawn and mm-hmm. he brings up this instance where you had this instance in 1988-89 where to quote where one individual carried out quite a lot of grisly things to young women and mm-hmm. <clears throat> his name gets conflated to mean these shut-ins who then explode on other people right so basically otaku sounds like incel it almost seems like this is incel 80 style late or 80s early 90s style right the intermediary point between otaku and incel right gamer yeah mm. you know like, so there's the, yeah and then he argues that no actually people use that term in a more positive light Um, and people began to question why was this was so, such seen as something so bad, and that be- and this is when he brings on our favorite anime Evangelion and talks about how when Evangelion came out it became a hit and became and got a lot of wide attention. Then this kind of geekery became accepted, but then it kind of brings back, <clears throat> excuse me, it kind of brings back this question of was it the media who just decided to change its mind and celebrate it or are you necessarily calling yourselves that um and so you know it's like not to not to go into the practice of invalidating cultures and individuals for their own determination of who says who they are but it's it's almost like wait a minute what are you really and i guess that's why He's insisting on using a postmodern framework because postmodern frameworks will argue, well, power will determine what who defines what an otaku is. It's going to be your ability to navigate um, certain cultural realities through, you know, the act of persuasion. So again, that ideological state apparatus showing itself inside here again and stuff like that, and and that's where I'm just kind of like. Uh, Even the very start, for me, seems like a convenient generalization of what it means to be something. Especially yeah. like Emma pointed out, um, <laughs> it's so different now. Like clearly, we've moved on from this uh, from this yeah. behavior. But I do see the roots of where we're coming from. Yeah, and like I don't know. Oh. I <laughs> I because one of the trick questions across anthropology is to define a culture. And it's supposed to be a trick question because it's really hard to do. But for all of this, I can't get over the fact that this is just essentially a type of nerdery that is within the context of Japanese pop culture and in many ways in Japanese society. But like the way a lot of pop culture studies do this kind of stuff now is to refer to communities, not to cultures, because there are many cultures within these communities and to then flatten it all and refer to otaku culture 
makes it a very almost like a grand narrative style thing. Like we have these <laughs> defined borders of this is the culture and this is who belongs. And that's that set me off a little. But like, yeah, you should see my printed out notes. Also. <laughs> You know, one day, one day we should have like, not that we should go video podcast. We would, I would never go, I would never inflict my, my image on, on other people. But um, you're so cute. Yeah, but that's in the eye of the beholder. Um, <laughs> but, okay, and, fine, you know, whatever. <laughs> thank you for calling me cute. I mean, yes, uh, but you know, it's like, I want to be seen as like a goddess. <laughs> <laughs> isn't that really but isn't that really funny that he is guilty of creating this grand narrative when he has this section called the grand non-narrative and the decline yeah. of the grand and i'm just kind of like oh god i got something to say about this fiction versus grand narrative <laughs> nonsense oh my god okay, maybe it it might be easier for us to say like what is this guy's argument basically why would he write this is my question okay so i'll do a best approximation of the argument uh, as fairly as possible and without sarcasm, you know, is that he wants to talk about like the sort of fascination with otaku culture. He wants to talk about how it has gone through a couple transformations. And for him, there's kind of this attraction repulsion that occurs around the aforementioned like horrible crimes and also then a generation of kids who as it's kind of a folk devil to smuggle in my own anthropology term you know start self-identifying with the term which he kind of charts around to evangelion um and he also wants to make the notes that the first generation of otaku are now you know 30 to 40 year old professionals and also that like the younger generation has a different point, and then he wants to move into sort of broad cultural narratives, uh, you know, with his kind of, uh, why am I so bad at, like, considering this, like, his idea of postmodernity and the image culture and the cultural disjunction he marks at the occupation and post-45 era um, and views this as sort of part of a Kojevian um, self-evaluation evolution um, towards the development of a culture. Also, mm -hmm. for his central like argument, a very important thing is that a lot of this culture develops on the early internet, and that websites and databases and a lot of vets and forum culture are very oriented around otaku discussions. And that has been a kind of hazy stoned version of that in, I think, two minutes. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting thing for, going on for me here because, like, I've um, I've read a good chunk of the next chapter, which is most of the book. <laughs> I've read maybe half <laughs> of the next chapter um, also. And I, while absolutely, like, the first chapter is really concerned with this issue of otaku specifically and looking at them as a culture in giant scare quotes and all of that. Um, what I've read of the second chapter is kind of not, it's, it's very much using sort of the specifics of certain otaku trends, perhaps like things that we could label as generally otaku, but very specific um, happenings and trends and whatever as a case study to get across this, what I'm assuming is a fairly novel conception of 
a database understanding rather than a grand narrative under, you know, against that very wink, wink, postmodern grand narrative thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's got this, it feels like it has an ax to grind on that front, which like, honestly, um, from what I've read so far, I'm kind of into this database idea. Like, I think it's useful in some interesting ways. And that's, I've actually got, when we, when we do the next chapter, I've got kind of a weird way of mapping the way we colloquially, colloquially understand games onto this database issue. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like, uh, the author completely drops the issue, <laughs> um, at least right at the beginning of chapter two, he, he might pick it up again, you know, partway through chapter two or in the third chapter, perhaps, I don't know. Yeah, I did. I did read part of the second chapter too, and it gets a lot less inflammatory. I will say that yeah. like the, the writing style and approach to things in this first chapter, I was like, I hope to God he comes back to some of this. <laughs> And explains himself because <laughs> I think I said this in the first episode. It's like, you can't just say some of these things and walk away. Yeah. And especially, well, that's the problem too. Now it's becoming more and more important to incorporate straight up reception studies and actually look at the consumers and the communities that they're forming instead of just making large statements about them based on, I don't know what, I haven't looked at his citations yet, but like some of this, I'm like, every time. Yeah. Especially say, in the first chapter. Period. Yeah. The first especially, chapter is particularly yeah. bad. And, and for me, especially like in this first chapter, a lot of the stuff, like, you know, there's this thing on page four, where he's obviously referring to a very specific thing that I don't have access to. And the footnote is unhelpful to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like this, this idea, oh. it's like the fourth paragraph on chapter four or on page four, where it's unfortunately the term became widely known in connection with this grotesque incident, connecting it to some subculture that emerged in the 1970s. The footnote says something about science fiction very broadly as a subculture in 1970s Japan. And I'm assuming there's like an incident, <laughs> you know, or like a, a larger cultural touchstone that I just don't have access to. Um, which is fine. I don't need to have access to it, but like it's definitely doing and just sort of walking away from it. Like you say, Mm. there's a lot of kind of saying and walking away in this in a way that like to me reads as like very, a grad student is trying to antagonize you into letting them make an argument they want to like, you know, just in what is post-modernity where he just drops 30 to 40 years ago, the fundamental conditions that determined the con, constituents of culture changed within lace capitalist societies of Japan, Europe, and America. Consequently, this change was accompanied by transformations in many areas of cultural production. For example, rock music, special effects movies, and pop art emerged. LSDs and computers were born, politics and literature lost their luster, and the notion of the avant-garde disappeared. Our society is situated in the aftermath of this massive rupture. You know, like, he, he just... That is a pretty bold and random set of things to throw in. It's like a borderline cold read, right? Yeah. But like, <laughs> it's also uh, yeah. very, I'm a smart academic. Like, mm-hmm. I, I also exactly did that to summarize the chapter earlier for those unaware of dramatic <laughs> irony. Um, of, I know my own tricks very well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I partly while reading this, I'm like, okay, calm down. I think some of this is like rhetoric and tactic and setup. And that's why I'm like, I just got to keep reading, read some more of the stuff. 
I think some of this is sort of almost tongue in cheek to some of the other academics and authors and not necessarily meant for the rest of the audience. And in some places I was like, okay, is this something you believe or are you going to in a few more sentences say, this is not what I believe? Because that was also something he did fairly often. Yeah, that happens quite a bit in here. I was like, sure. Here's all these ideas. This is what I believe instead. I'm like, oh my God. It's like, it's like, you know, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the author's academic track record. I don't think he claims to be an academic per se. Uh, but like. Oh, I thought you. He I, is, right. Yeah. He is. But, at Tokyo Institute Technology Center for the Study of World Civilizations. Okay. Yeah. It's just like, I guess it, because it was. Oh, well, so you first, Emma, you first, you first. To be fair, there are, well, because I I do archaeology and I read and translate Japanese academic articles and read translations of it, this is kind of a standard approach to writing in some Japanese stuff, especially the more popular academic, is a combination of bold statements, actual information explanation, and every once in a while, there are ideas that are just generally accepted. And this is probably true. No, this is definitely true of all academic stuff. There are some ideas that have just become so entrenched that you no longer need to explain yourself or support why it might be important. Mm. But uh, if you're reading it really critically and in detail, you're just like, hold on. <laughs> yeah, like... I and you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, so... This chapter has, I think, fairly major claims uh, regarding to what makes something otaku. So yes. first, he will talk about Japanese imagery. He will basically say that there has to be something notably identifiable from Japanese culture inside a product to make it otaku, um, which might, which may or may not be uh contradictory to what Japanese people expect of their culture. He gives an example of Sailor Mars in, in Sailor Moon to illustrate that because she's a shrine maiden who wears high heels, for example. He is, his next one is uh, that um, the source of otaku culture is the USA, which I think will get that some people like... That is probably the most inflammatory claim he makes in that whole introduction, right? Oh, yeah. Like... <clears throat> Which I, I read it thinking, uh, huh, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable with this. Yeah. Um, the third one is that uh, there are unique aesthetics developed by Japanese anime, meaning that, uh, that um, again, that there has to be like a... There has to be a recognizable aesthetic to it, I guess, big eyes, among other things. And then and then finally that he argues that um that there is this illusion that Japan is on like the innovator and the avant-garde of everything. As the cutting mm -hmm. edge of everything. And that's where that's where I just kind of like start thinking. <laughs> uh uh oh. Like so this is when I yeah, this is when I'm like, I think I'm out of my depth here, and I will, I will, I will leave this to the higher grads. So Emma and Fiona have that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and for some of this, I might have some more backgrounds. 
um, because so much of this does have to do with what I would call like the larger cultural heritage industry, which includes archaeology and history. And so for some of this, I was just like, what? He likes to talk about like ruptures and severing and like the whole pseudo Japan coming from a severance of traditional. I'm like, I cannot with this kind of kind of idea of a traditional versus now a new pseudo imitation. I'm like, ah, la, la, la. <laughs> but we could get to that. And uh, do, do you want to unpack that? Okay. Because I think I, I can see the sentence, which would inflame most people. So um, uh, here. there's a this, lot, of but I, but this is the one which I think isn't, I think for like, going back to the whole, this is a TTRPG thing is oh, yeah. the fact that, um, I think we now live in a time when we are acknowledging there is a greater need for diversity in our games. Like yes. we're trying to look for more uh, cogent and meaningful representation in games. And it's starting, I wouldn't say it's become a wave, but definitely there is now greater demand now more than ever. So the question tends to be, I think, as a non-US creator on my end, Am I making games which reflect me and myself, or am I reflecting and making games that have to reflect a U.S. or a non-my background, um, uh, you know, not my background uh, product to reflect that? A good example of that is if I design, for example, for Dungeons or Dragons, or even say something even more innocent like. Because the bakers are wonderful, like for like for Apocalypse World, uh, you know, using those systems that originate from the USA. In the act of me doing that, am I watering down my culture such that my material is only pseudo Filipino or pseudo Asian manufactured from US made material? Now, I think that's a relevant question, but <laughs> this is where the but but this is where I kind of find like, uh oh, this become when he argues it, it's. He says, so the relationship between Japan, in quotes, and otaku culture was torn more or less into two separate paths in the collective psyche. On the one hand, as connected to the experience of defeat, the presence of otaku culture is a grotesque reflection of the fragility of a Japanese identity. And this is because, the, again, in quotes, Japanese themes and modes of expression created by otaku are in fact imitations and distortions of U.S.-made material and i'm just kind of like uh, like is that necessarily the case i mean like is I that think it goes too far <laughs> what is that uh, like I mean, yeah you know it's 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 like oh i must have a low i have a slow ego because i'm following industry standards which were maybe they were not established in my home country but by virtue, I'm like, and I don't understand like the historical placement of that statement, because it seems like what are people who make anime were they people who had you know chips on their shoulder and oh. therefore produced something to? But here's the thing: he's not talking about the people who make it, yeah. And that's something that I wrote down a whole lot. It's just like you're kind of removing the creator as individuals by focusing on the cons larger patterns in consumption and trying to make broad statements about that. But you forget that there's people behind the actual products themselves. Can I have a really hot take on this? Yeah, let's hear it. <laughs> Is this simply someone who's not aware of his own, like, 
affiliation to the capitalist way of living, doing things. Like the very fact that it's very consumption, bo- <laughs> like it's very consumption based. It's like, are you alienated from the creator? <laughs> and it's it yeah. just and it becomes a little bit more. It I I just find it very strange because it it's not a post modernity that I understand as it's being discussed. Yeah. His postmodernity is a postmodernity that is infused by 1960s, 1970s Japanese post-war, uh, like you know, reconstructive models of what postmodernity actually means. When I'm just kind of like, what made a minute? Postmodernity is is meant to be a response to, like, a lot of these like these these periods. I just find it like he's he's he is ahistorically postmodern by making it historical. And that's what makes it very confusing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, where is the, what are you? <sighs> well, I think you see a bit of a troll, right? Like I do want to give credit to, I think we're kind of falling into a trap by getting upset insofar yeah. as I've read two, I've read all of two postmodern Japanese texts in translation to English. So I cannot claim to be an expert. And the other person is someone that is positively cited by him in a later chapter. But like, there does seem to be a tendency to use the introduction to really upset the reader or like kind of prod provoke or like get them kind of like, what the fuck? Why are you saying this? Um, Mm -hmm. In a way that is, contrary to the standard of how writing is done in the field I was trained in, but like, not that that is any universal standard, obviously, but like, I do think it's one of the things that makes this such a weird intro is just like, I can't tell if he thinks it's even good or bad that there is a pseudo modernity or a pseudo post modernity or like whether or not he believes that like the illusion of the Edo mercantile period is like, you know, actually a good thing for people to turn back to because it also just constantly seems to turn on references really quickly. Mm -hmm. Like, or that it actually is a thing that there was a traditional Japan versus a new one or hey uh, yeah <laughs> it's like, yeah, like, it's, Emma you sound like you're pulling surgical tools from your gut it's <laughs> yeah I can like absolutely correct <clears throat> that I do think he's trolling he is riling the reader but also prodding at other academics in a lot of ways and then also blending both other people's ideas and then every once in a while popping in to be like well this is actually my idea idea which is something that gets elaborated on in the rest of the book but there are some things that i really hold out here section by section and one is that Edo period idea because that is kind of ongoing and i suspect that's what he means by jap like traditional japan and japanese tradition and identity because it just keeps dropping that like Japanese identity. Okay, well, <laughs> you know, there's more than one person in Japan, right? <laughs> well, he also that, that gets a little tricky. Sorry, like, it also seems like he's doing the weird thing of, like, he mentions Koyev, who I've read a long time ago and do not remember in great detail, but, you know, is a French... Um, a French Hegelian and like even admits he's using Koyev's version of Japan's Edo and like 
Yeah. A lot of the criticism of Koyev is how confidently he talks about cultures he's had no contact with. Yeah. As a French theorist in like the yeah. 40s. Well, referring to and, Edo of Kiri Japan as an uh, era of snobbery or whatever. It's like, well, okay. <laughs> yeah. By the, and an, yeah, expression Showa Genroku, which is not translated. So I, have, of course, have no idea what's going on in some parts of this, but it's like, you're yeah. being a troll, right? Like, you're literally citing a yeah. French dude who's never been to Japan, who has a secondhand knowledge of anything about Japan, at best, based on era, where, like, one of the better anthropological resources is, like, the the sword in the chrysanthemum, which is reconstructed from, basically, letters from monks who have a completely distorted view of Japanese culture mm-hmm. on top of their colonialist relations, right? Before, like, anything else. And it's like, why yeah. are you citing him at all to talk about the Edo period? You, you have everything yeah. else to cite. And I will say that Edo is a very interesting, has a very interesting place in the larger picture of Japanese past. Partly because there is some cultural heritage stuff, like uh, museums and historical parks and TV programs that kind of promote this as a time of uh, sort of the highest peak of Japanese culture. Partly because it was uh, the isolationist period. And it's become connected to these like ultra nationalist concepts of Japanese culture developing without the influence of others, which is actually absolute bullshit if you know anything about the history or the archaeology and development of Japanese culture in general. But that is kind of the rhetoric that surrounds this Edo, Edo culture and its Japanese-ness. And it gets pretty messy because it's just, it's not an, like, he does say, maybe not in this chapter, but maybe in the next one, that it is a complete fabrication, that people don't really understand the Edo period. They have a feeling about it. And a lot of the cultural historical attractions play on that feeling, which is also promoted by things like Jidaigeki and traditional theater like kabuki and no and some of that stuff like yeah he just uses a really short uh thing for that in that section of using saber marionette j a like borderline erosion to make a cultural argument yeah (laughs) points for originality also like picking and choosing random examples and deep reading them and then being like here i I've proven something. I can't. I can't with you. <laughs> At least but it's yeah. fast. Unlike American postmodernists, they'll analyze like one episode of South Park over a sixty-page chapter to explain American foreign policy. Yeah, that Wait, is what? a bit much. <laughs> yeah, that's a the chapter that most needs an editor in terrorist assemblages by Jasbir Poir. Again, wait, what? <laughs> Sorry. Too much. <laughs> I, I guess Why like I studied postmodernism like a lot. Yeah, yeah, I mean it's you know, I mean like the problem I think that's happening here, I mean if there is to be a problem with this text, is that um just like getting out of the book a little bit and looking at how we need to understand this this otakuness 
Uh, we we mentioned it somewhat in the previous uh, in the previous um, episode where we talked about the problem of people appropriating uh, of people appropriating um, Japanese aesthetics, right? Mm-hmm. In order to influence Asian aesthetics, but more specifically, I think Japan, by virtue of anime and otaku products, tends to mm-hmm. be the one appropriated the most. Where people from outside Japan come in and grab the, you know, grab the aesthetic but without looking at the substrate and then not appreciating that and then just putting them on their books, their games, so on. Mm-hmm. But here's where I think it becomes a rather dangerous argument, which is, well, if Japan is merely a reflection of, of pseudo-America, right? Mm-hmm. Or basically it imitates American mores into a Japanese aesthetic, then would, would like three accusations can be made based on that claim, which is why I think it's a bit inflammatory and needs to be thoroughly unpacked. Which is number one, are the Japanese guilty of cultural appropriation of America, right? Because if it's simply an imitation of something, then what is that? Mm. Um, Which we then do sometimes see, particularly in their depictions of black individuals. I think that's very problematic and that needs to be looked at. Um, Like, did they also get the the racism from America, basically? Or was that their own racism? I'm like, you know, that's already a very shaky, difficult question that really has to be looked at by people far more qualified and well-placed than I am. Um, The second one is, it's like the second implication of that statement would be, well, if we're all just borrowing anyway, because we're now operating on like a notion that postmodernism is basically anything that happens after modernity, then you also need to define what makes for what is modern. And he makes his next claim, but Japan was never modernized to begin with. Yeah, always been his next most inflammatory claim. Which is, yeah. Which but I feel is like, like that wasn't his claim based on how it's framed, but he does put it in with very little explanation. Right. And basically, and he talks about how basically when you talk with the definition of modernity then becomes that, well, if the West was the industrial revolution and so on, if the West represents modernity, then post-modernity is Japan. And he then yeah. refers to the 80s. And I'm just kind of like, post-modernity is a th- way of thinking. It is not just a historical point. And that's when going back to the whole, like, yeah. where are you placing the historicity of this? Because are you talking about the theory and all the things that were published? Or are you simply saying post-modernity is a period in time? Which is kind of like, wait a minute. This, you're, the conflation and the, the ease with which he uses different meanings for post-modernity does yeah. rile me up a bit. And I think that's what the, that's his troll trap for me. <laughs> yeah. Honest. And like in a lot of pop culture studies now, post-modernity refers to more as uh, like the series and conditions that people experience rather than going back to philosophy specifically or even larger sociopolitical trends, but more just what does it mean for the individual living within these settings? Mm-hmm. And that's where I've done most of my reading is, like I said, reception studies and sort of transnationalism and the using the con- broader concept of postmodernism to understand community formation across entire the entire globe, right? I mean, it's so it's so difficult, honestly. Oh, yeah. I mean, and then the last thing that I think. But by, like the impl- the reason, 
I don't want to fall into the trap because I do get annoyed, but I, I do think he also has to like own up. And if I could, if like, if he was my student, as if I was more qualified than he was, I would, I would like, can you please like actually follow some kind of structure to your argument? Which oh, yeah. is that the implication of the, the implications of these claims are such that these impacts are far heavier and actually attack the culture, which he purports to defend. Yeah. Right? Like, he's like, we should understand otaku is something more positive than that. He actually goes against the derogatory nature of it. Yeah. But, well, just before, like, if he's going to argue that otaku products are the result of, again, copying American mores and trying to make them Japanese, he's bashing creators. But he never talks about creators except through that very passive-aggressive way. Yeah. And then highlights consumers as if somehow consumers are what makes the maker relevant, mm-hmm. which in my mind is not postmodern. <laughs> no. That's very modern. That's very mercantile. It's very, yeah, well, production. <laughs> you know, so like, yeah. what is this? I was going to add that another trick that I could see ha- happening here too is you're talking about appropriation. And one of the things that bothered me when he was contrasting otaku culture with Japanese tradition is he makes it sound like otaku are appropriating Japanese culture, but he's talking about Japanese people producing Japanese pop culture within the setting of Japanese society and their their situatedness within Japan and all of this. So I just kept writing like, why is it surprising that they use Japanese imagery and mythology and traditions and elements of a a very healthy supernatural tradition in japan like the whole thing about the miko the shrine maidens why why are you surprised by the use of miko who are high school student age girls who still exist today (laughs) it's it's I, I don't understand this whole like why you just keep saying but they're obsessed with japan i'm like yeah, but they're Japanese and they're Japanese creators. They're obsessed these with things. But it's like they're why obsessed. Why would they not use it? <laughs> it's it's just like they're obsessed. I think the accusation in his point, it's not direct, which is why I'm like, I'm like, just say it, man. Yeah. Which is you why is there a problem making Japanese things following a US model? That's that's where I find the that I would also like to know what this wonky. US model is. Exactly. Like, is it because it's cartoons? Is it because it's Hollywood? Is it because... Yeah. Like, but it's... Yeah. And it's like... It's, like, it's not explained enough, obviously. <laughs> I think it's, and I took a lot of issue... Or, like, I had a lot of problems with this idea that something like genres and mediums, like animation and comics are somehow culture and not mediums through which cultures can be communicated. Cause it's not like he never at any point says like, Oh, well, Japan started writing novels. And so that was them taking on a certain culture. It's like, no, something about animation in particular, it seems and comics, which yes, became very popular in the 1950s, not just in, japan but in a whole bunch of other places but like completely removing the fact that 
the technologies and the methods and the development of animation and comics is not a U.S. specific thing. It's not an American invention. And (laughs) this is a larger problem within, I'm going to keep saying this, this is a larger problem within pop culture studies in general is centralizing the U.S. in terms of world trends and pop culture as if they are somehow the the creators and masters of it all. I mean, come Uh, on. Americans are notorious are notorious for appropriation, which is why I kind of find it really funny. Like there are so many things that came from other countries that were mass produced by the USA, but it doesn't mean that they invented the concept of it. And I just find it really like, even look at the people within the U S who developed early animation that became popular animation. They were mostly German, Uh, a lot of Eastern European immigrants and I'm going to say like a whole lot of people that might not be considered American at the time, but also, yeah, Germany and France had a lot to do with the development of animation and Japan has its own interactions with those. So to boil this down to the post-war occupation period is a bit convenient. Well, convenient and oversimplified. Although I will say there is an ongoing I don't, I want to say fascination, but also just general thoughts and feelings about the post-war occupation and how the war went. You can't really deny that, but how, what, how much it influences creators and consumers is something that needs to be asked of those individuals and not theorized on a grand scale based on how you think it might happen when you mash it together with old European philosophy. And, you know, newspaper articles. This is kind of hilarious to me, to be perfectly honest about it. Because it, it's it's just... This is... I, I feel... I feel... I feel gammoned. I feel like I've been played. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Like I said, I, I read some of the next chapter, and it's much more... What you would forgiving. expect of a more, more academic text. Yeah. But this first one is just like, yeah, let's throw everything out there. Make them real mad. Also, mislabeling Sailor Mars and mixing <laughs> them up with Sakura. Oh my god. I, just, I, I, I saw that and I was like, did you oh, do that on purpose? Are was, you going to make honestly, a point about this? <laughs> okay. No, for the reader, for the, reader uh, the, the, the book... Uh, uses figures. So figure A, it's labeled figure A, figure 1A, Sakura from Odyssey Yatsura, produced by Studio Perot. And then figure 1B, Sailor Mars from Sailor Moon, produced by Tuei, but it's the wrong picture. So yeah, Sakura is, is, is Ray, and then Ray is, it's, it really makes you wonder. Like, I'm, I'm wondering, is this a univer- University of Minnesota oh, press problem? My book, is, my book has, has it the other way around. It has it the right way around. Someone made a mistake, and I was like, Someone, this, this yeah. has to be a trap. <laughs> like, they all look the same, you know? And I'm just kind of like, oh my God. That's just, yeah. this is. Reveal you're an otaku without actually. That's like, it, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, let's make the otakus mad by mislabeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, how to know who's an otaku? The ones who got mad are the ones who are otaku. And, the, you know, but <laughs> it's just, it's just like, I think it brings us to a really interesting place because like, if this is the discourse, like, 
that we're dealing with, with and I and Emma, I think you can speak more accurately to this than I can, which is that if we're going to look at pop culture studies and so on and media studies as things that in, inform how we should design, mm. this books like these become landmines because you're leaving people because he because he's not clear with his conclusions. Yeah. He's very leave and you know, like fine, you have to read the entire book. But I'm also a great believer of you must put your conclusion in the chapter. Yes. It's not there. And and I think the problem with that, especially since we live in a world where unfortunately academics don't take entire books, they just assign chapters. Um oh, and- People also pick up books and are like, I'm going to read this. Yeah, and then know, they only get yeah. past so many pages, you know? Yeah. It just, <laughs> because it leaves you, it leaves the reader to their own devices on how to understand and interpret what he means because he's unclear. Mm-hmm. You now have the danger, again, of people misrepresenting whatever argument he has to fulfill the ideology and to fulfill their own ideology. Now, this is not to say that every author should be able to protect their work from the bad faith readings of others. I think that's too much pressure on any author, really. But what I do find is that we do have a responsibility to be quite clear with what we're saying so that mm-hmm. at the end of the day, we're not going to do this Russian formalism bullshit of the author is dead and actually refer to what the text says, which I do believe is also a postmodern way of doing things. So for someone so well-placed, and I say this sarcastically at this point, in postmodernity, we are looking at a very uncritically examined postmodern text. It's, <laughs> it's oh my god, I'm giving myself a migraine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, so annoyed right now. I mean, it's like, okay, because I found the bit where, like, I just, I, I cannot imagine this not being intentional trolling when he's like, we can only construct an image of the Japanese cityscape by picturing family restaurants, convenience stores, and love hotels. Like, one, yeah. I can understand that in his argument of a pseudo-Japan of U.S.-produced material in that, yeah, a family restaurant concept is kind of an American-ish, like, like the Danny's diner chain and actual Denny's and et cetera in Japan are like, yeah, a conspicuous Americanism in the way that Americans have Chinese restaurants that are not in fact Chinese in any meaningful way. Convenience stores. I'm pretty sure Japan had prior to like, and yeah, like considering Edo is known as the mercantile period. There were so many shops and convenience stores and things like that. And like, Love hotels predate, like, conceptually, that is one of the earliest forms of building. Probably. You're the actual archaeologist, but I'm First going of all, to every hotel is eight. a love hotel, yeah. depending <laughs> on who's going there and why. But, like, yeah, temporary <laughs> shelter that's paid for, for the purposes of anything, is, you know, probably the second form of housing yeah. invented after shelter building Shelter and your anonymity, own. yeah, absolutely. So like yeah, I also saw that and was like okay, all right. He, his conclusion where he just like, ah, uh, where is the bit that he just yeah, um, where he's like, 
yeah, like the entire and the significance of otaku culture followed by the conclusion, now that the importance of otaku culture has been explained, let us finally move on to the key issues at hand. Where it's like, yeah. no, you actually just said a lot of things and a lot of them need clarification. <laughs> but also, yeah, I guess if all of that's out of the way, I don't know what you're going to cover. Yeah, I don't know what's happening next. <laughs> I... <laughs> Oh my gosh. I mean, seriously, though, I mean, it's, I still think it's a pretty important book to read for certain reasons. Like, I I would like to read the updated, the far more updated version, to be honest. Yeah. yeah, But definitely, like, okay, so I don't know about you, but going back to game history, This is the period. I would say, like, I don't know when anime really reached the USA. Like, when did anime become, like, the weeb thing in the USA? So or North America? When, you know, just to give exactish dates, um, theoretically, I do meet the third generation otaku for him because, like, by the time I was in high school, I had seen, you know, Evangelion. Yeah. Um, because that was translated pretty recently, but like, you know, anime was sold in DVDs, uh, with dubs, no subs in many cases, at three episodes a DVD for 20 to $40. Yep. Uh, or sometimes you could get Chinese bootlegs. Yeah. Um, Okay. Had like complete series. Um, Yeah. And before that, things mm -hmm. like Speed Racer, I think, were some of the earliest imports that were televised. So, like, late 60s, early 70s was the first really big import wave of, because it was cheap, cheap animation that they dubbed however they felt like and would throw on TV at strange hours. But, like, being an anime nerd as a subtype of person, like, it was, at the time that I was that, you know, like... There's the internet community of people that desperately wanted someone to try to learn Japanese from and or like to do that sort of thing because they broadly are interested in Japanese culture in addition to anime. Mm -hmm. But like Mm -hmm. anime was a point of entry. Okay. And so like like, there were fandoms for some anime, but like, you know, I don't think even in major cities you could find like outside of a once a year screening of Akira, like it would be hard to see like Miyazaki films on any sort of screen, you know? Yeah. So yeah, like I would say this is me just like top of my head, right? This, this has no basis in any expertise, but just from an observation, I would say that in the, in North America, at least anime being anime became a bigger thing in the late 90s because of i remember toonami yeah toonami was huge like and i remember being on american tv was just shattering against all other american tv was a yeah a game changer like there was this time there was this block of time where you know i would say video games came in earlier with the nintendo and stuff and started stuff there Mm -hmm. but then people actually watching anime as opposed to playing Japanese games, I would argue the 1990s really, where that you had this big explosion. Yeah. So the reason why I bring that up is because this book is situated in a time when I would argue that most 
designers, most millennial designers at least, started getting that aesthetic. Yes. Yep. And yeah. so, and so, if you're a millennial designer, oh my God, I can't believe. I'm using. <laughs> but if, but that said, if you're especially using, an just, elder millennial, <laughs> an, if you're an elder millennial designer, but you know, like, it, oh God, it really does. It really does. It really does ask us how, because I often find that I, in in many game design questions, with things like the rule of cool, how do you make things happen? It, it's a question of how do we mechanize something that we've imagined or has inspired us to imagine more to make us recreate that over and over in a game, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I wanted to throw a frisbee like Miss Sailor Moon did at enemies. So I got pretty good at frisbee. So, <laughs> like, yeah. And as a and I would imagine as a designer, people would want to do that and figure those things out. So, this goes back to a lot of like previous work. Um, would we say that reading text like this is an important part, problematic and all, and really unearthing all of these terms on their own terms? Is that part of the appreciative process to prevent you from appropriating? Because do you, like, up to what level of understanding of what this culture slash community is, that if you're going to use their cultural, um, you know, output, do you, should you be reading texts like these? I mean, mm. I don't know if this text in in particular, even though I like it, (laughs) people probably should right like i think as someone who really is not the best position to say things i would point out that like there's also just the interesting factor of like increasingly anime and manga are export culture from japan that is heavily tailored towards you know export audiences you know, there's not as many anime being made where translating the dialogue is hard because if you make it hard to translate the dialogue into as many languages as possible, you're missing out on streaming revenue, which is going mm. to probably at a certain point eclipse the Japanese domestic market slash has for some things. For some things. But not all. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah, that's also the, become like a split within anime communities, right? Between people that yeah. want animation that is made for a Japanese audience and people that want animation that is made for a global audience that happens to be made yeah. in Japan. And the, mm, yeah. there's major differences within the studios and the production process in those two cases. The same goes for video games. Like Something like Square Enix has a very different production line than something smaller but also still even those larger companies produce so many things that will never see the light of day anywhere outside of japan oh yeah still to this to this day yeah i mean yeah i think there's i i know what you mean by the there is a fairly good chunk that has its mind toward export, but I would say the vast majority of the anime industry and manga and all of that are a lot of creators in small studios who are just happy to make anything happen and are really crossing their fingers for something that will be popular enough that it will be translated and exported. Oh. Yeah, I get that treatment. Oh, yeah, sorry. Or good. just be popular enough to fund itself so they don't all starve by the end of the month, you know? Like, 
this is something that I have to really, in some of my courses, push students away from, especially if it's an English study, is the idea that Japan is looking at other countries like the U.S. as a target for their markets and to bolster their their creative cultural industries when there's a, there's a whole lot more going on. Um, uh, sorry for making sure I didn't completely misspeak. I also mean the reduction of things that, for example, are targeted explicitly at adults, right? Like I mean, oh, yeah. the easy one to point out as a gap is the 1980s versus right now, which admittedly is a 40 year gap. Um, but like, oh my god, yeah, Vamp- Vampire Hunter D and like a lot of the late 80s through 90s things that are high on gore, uh, high concept sci fi, uh, explicit mm. nudity, um, strong amounts of hentai animation, some of which couldn't be screened in Japan. You know, like those things, I think, have gradually been siphoned away because they're too niche within everywhere which might be one of the otaku reasons that I find, you know, subcultural things interesting. Also, just the era in which there were a lot of uh, shows that were difficult to translate because there's so much culturally specific things that, like, the pun just cannot work. Yeah. Um, But, sorry, this has drifted a lot, and Jared has pointed out we're over time limit. Oh, we are? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh. We've just ranted. Okay, well, I ranted. Oops. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's not a bad book. It is an infuriating book, at least I think this chapter. We might be able to say that the first chapter is bad. I think yeah. we could probably make that claim. It's provocative. And it's annoying for people who already have ideas about this stuff. I will say that I would maybe point to this as an example of a Japanese written text where... They are critical of whether, like, anime and manga actually represents Japanese culture itself, because that is something relevant to games, mm. where a lot of people are using pop culture as a way to get a general idea of what Japanese culture, society, and history is like. And he is very clear, even though I don't entirely agree, that there is a major difference between that and the representations within pop culture media. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'll say this as a person who has, you know, coming into this book, I've got like no background, you know what I mean? On, on yeah. several fronts. Uh, <laughs> like I, I've seen Evangelion and that is about as much as I can say as to my experience of the material at hand, top to bottom. I don't even like do postmodernism theory. It really, you know, in my spare time. So like, it's all fairly outside of my, so I reading the first chapter, my response is very just like, yeah, sure. <laughs> you yeah, know, sure. which is which is maybe part of why, maybe that points at some of why it might be problematic that it, that it exists in exactly the way it does in English, at least. Yeah. Jared, with a good faith reading. <laughs> I mean, that's, like, I do that. Totally. I, yeah. I don't, people act like I am completely unreasonable just because I twist things around the opposite way of what the people intended. But... <laughs> Actually, I think I tend to approach things like just assuming that they're they're at least coming from somewhere. So yeah. yeah. Anyway, my, I, I definitely took this and, and had to. You know what I mean? I didn't have an option. I didn't have anything to fall back on as like a short of a few moments where I was like, "When really?" Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I know that you can't just say otaku culture. 
Like, yeah. I, you know, I, like- <laughs> I think in terms of levels of damage, I would say the one who comes out of this reading the most scathed is Emma. Then Hi. Fiona, then me, then Jared. I think Fiona. I, th- I think Fiona and Emma are like way up there in the. Oh holy yeah. fuck! <laughs> well, yeah, and some of it for me is also related to the game and games industry, and me acting as a cultural consultant. Where if someone wants to, yeah, bad faith point at this and be like, "Well, a Japanese guy is saying it," I'm like, "All right." Yeah. I mean. Do you that have is, time? Sit down. I have things to say. <laughs> but, but that's always, I think, the danger of these kinds of texts, right? Like, yeah. Um, you, because the Japanese do it, which, again, like, if you think about, I mean, let's be honest, some of the sexism in anime, like... Oh, yeah. I, I like... Seriously, like, guys, like, seriously. Um, seriously. It's, yeah. It's It's... It's used as, um, so it's like, maybe that's a good thing to say. Maybe the biggest, the best takeaway from this uh, first book, a first, first chapter in this book is just because you see it on anime, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is Japanese. Mm -hmm. And thus, if you're going to start saying that you want to have Asian representation in a game, you're going to definitely have to go well beyond the aesthetic presented in anime. Yeah. I mean, you can't because just use things you've seen on TV. <laughs> you know, like do the yeah. research, read the books. No, I've done deep yeah. research on the American culture. I've watched several seasons of 24. Completely I've informed watched- on everything <laughs> you need theory. to know about Americans, and I am ready to write about them. Fiona, I understand America because I've watched every single Marvel movie. <laughs> that actually. That's More or less true, yeah. might actually be broadcasting <laughs> parts of what the U.S. truly believes insofar as our government's involved in making movies. I mean, yeah. But you, you know. have to read them pretty closely, but I think it's all in there. There yeah. might be this bit about how our military is both really good, benevolent, never targets civilians, and um, has always conducted itself with the most forthright and ethical manner possible. Willing really to face responsibility for things that it does. I know? mean, seriously, they're all about regular. They're <laughs> all about total following. Willingness to ever meet with an international court, which is totally cool and poggers, despite I'm sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm, okay, like, but let's, last parting shot. Come on, Marvel movies are no way to understand American culture because they respect the chords there. There's <laughs> 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 a Sokovia agreement. I'm just gonna like wait. Since when did America <laughs> follow follow international peace treaties to its liking? They don't even enforce the ones they help broker. Sorry. Sorry, that's uh, done. Now, done. Let, let her rip. <laughs> hey, done. the thing us not done. having sponsors is that we can say whatever the fuck we want and they will never be done. able to take away our ad revenue. You know, the international rights of the child have not yet been ratified by America. Just saying. If they did, they would have to do something say. about our schools, which we're never well, going to do. Because well, we're also because to close it's not. Them. Because it also acknowledges a child's right to bodily autonomy, so which would mean that you would have to allow children to have abortions on their own. Uh, but anyway, also wow. transition. Anyway, anyway, that's it. That's it. Uh, I'm. Well, is this the one we're gonna get canceled? Is that? Like- <laughs> yeah, Jared, you might want to roll back a bit and just cut before the twenty. Oh no, I'm gonna. That's the end of the episode. The final line of the episode. <laughs>